Friends, let's pray together. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that you make all things new. Thank you for the victory and the power that is in your name. Thank you that you hold the keys over death. Thank you that by your might, Jesus was raised from the grave, paving the way for us to have a new life with you. Thank you for your plan. Thank you that you made a way. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your great strength. We praise you for your lavish love. We praise you that you are the conqueror, victor, redeemer, and friend. That you are deliverer, the worthy one, the everlasting father, our great and awesome God. We confess our need for you. We confess it freshly, newly, daily, and again right now. We ask that you renew our hearts, our minds, our very lives for the days ahead. On this Resurrection Sunday, Father, we pray for your refreshing over us. Keep your words of truth planted firm within us. Help us to keep focus on what is pure and right. Give us the power to be obedient to your word. And when the enemy reminds us where we have been, hissing his lies and attacks our way, we trust that your voice speaks louder and stronger, reminding us that we are safe with you, that your purposes and plans will not fail. We ask that you would be our defense and our rear guard, keeping our way clear, removing the obstacles and covering the pitfalls. Lead us on your level ground, Lord. And shine your light in us, through us, over us. May we make a difference in this world for your glory and your purposes. Set your way before us and may all your plans succeed. May we reflect your peace and hope to a world that so desperately needs your presence and healing. Father, may the hope of the resurrection dispel the darkness or the the clouds that hang over any head, whether it be because of physical illness or disease, whether it be because of over-life-dominating sin, whether it be because of relationships that have been damaged seemingly beyond repair, whether it be financial strain, whether it be addiction. Father, may the hope of the resurrection pierce the darkness of this world and of our lives and remind us that victory is ours through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to you, God, for your indescribable gift. To you be glory and honor on this resurrection day and forever. In Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, our scripture reading is from 
the gospel according to Mark. We're going to read chapter 16, or sorry, we're going to start in chapter 15, verse 42, and we'll read down through chapter 16, verse 8. Uh, You can find it in the Pew Bibles there, or on your app, or even on the screen behind me. We're going to begin at Mark chapter 15, verse 42, and read down through 16, verse 8. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices, so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. I can tell you from experience um, that the hardest thing in uh, writing a sermon is figuring out the ending. Uh, There's a a phrase that preachers use called, it's landing the plane. You have to figure out how to land the plane well. If you've ever flown, you know that some pilots are really good at landing, others maybe not so great. And preaching is like that in the sense that, that we, a preacher wants to, to come up with a good ending. They want to have a, a resolution to the climax. They want to have a good punch for people to hold on to because everybody knows that the things that a listener remembers are the first thing you said and the last thing you said. And so you want to make sure that the first thing you said and certainly the last thing you said was worth remembering. It's probably the same in books and movies and poetry and all forms of communication, really. I bring this up because when you read Mark's ending to his gospel, it's very abrupt. It doesn't seem like a good ending. And maybe if you had a pew Bible, you uh, noticed that there's there's an addition to what Mark has written. Um, Verses 9 through 20 are in italics in my Bible, and I think they're in italics in the Pew Bible. The reason being is because most scholars believe that those words were not written by Mark himself. They certainly 
explain what happened next, but they aren't necessarily authentically Marcan. It's the fancy word for it. And therefore, they're left in italics. And so what you have, at least from Mark's pen, is this abrupt ending. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The end. Roll credits. And the other... uh, Authors, the other gospel writers, they don't do that. Matthew, he ends with the Great Commission. Luke ends with the Ascension. John ends with this great statement about all the other things that Jesus did. If they were written down, then, uh, then I'm sure that we would, all the books of the world couldn't fill them. But these have been shared so that you would believe in him. These are, are great uh, bow ties on the ends of their, their gospels. But Mark, we get none of that. It's just a cliffhanger. Why? Well, the reason is that Mark wants to push people to a response. Mark's the shortest gospel, okay? And when it was first written, the way it would get circulated around would be it would end up in one of the churches, probably one of the ones mentioned in the New Testament, and on a Sunday, the whole thing would be read from beginning to end. And so you'd be sitting there as a congregation, you'd hear this whole story about the life of Jesus. You'd hear about his miracles, about the incredible things he did. You would hear about his teaching, how he stood up and and spoke truth in a way with an authority that nobody else had ever done before. You'd read about all his confrontations with the spiritual leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And you'd read about how how he was wrongfully convicted in a kangaroo court and how he was put to death unjustly and, and how the sky grew dark for three hours that day when that happened, but then you would hear that on the third day, he uh, was going to rise again, and you would get to this ending where these women went to an empty tomb, and they left afraid. And the whole thing stops. And you read all that, or you hear all that, and you're supposed to say, well, now what? (laughs) This isn't like other superhero stories, right? I love the Marvel movies, okay? I love superhero stories. I love hearing stories about people with powers beyond the normal and how they do remarkable, astounding things. But I promise you, like, at the end of Iron Man, although he, does he have power or is he just really smart? Whatever. At the end of Iron Man, at the end of Thor, at the end of Guardians of the Galaxy, at the end of these great Marvel movies, I'm never thinking to myself, well, now what? Now that I've heard the story of Dr. Strange, what am I going to do with that story? How am I going to respond to that story? How is that story going to affect me? But this story, this story is different because this is a story about a man who lived on the earth like you and me, who died a death like you and me, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. This is a story that has consequences. This is a story that demands a response from us. It's a story that we cannot simply sit back and say, hmm, that was interesting, play the next clip. Or watch the next movie. Mark wants you to do something with this story. And what he's hoping you'll do is you'll respond the way Joseph of Arimathea did. Listen to verses 42 and 43. It was preparation day. 
That is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, it says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, what did he do? He went boldly to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. He went boldly. See, Joseph of Arimathea, he's a rich guy, okay? We know he's rich because his tomb is big. <clears throat> Has a large stone, Mark points out. And the women, when they come to this empty tomb, they can actually walk into that tomb. So it's spacious. It was probably a tomb that he had bought for his whole family and maybe generations of families. So this is a, a big tomb, meaning that he's a pretty rich dude. And he's a man of... He's a successful man, a prominent man with quite a reputation in the community. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, which was, uh, was sort of the Jewish leadership council of the, the people that lived in Palestine during the Roman occupation. They had, they had great influence. They had great power over the people. And so he's doing something astounding because he's asking for a criminal's body. Don't forget, Jesus was crucified as a criminal. You didn't bury criminals back then. You left them on the cross so that the crows could come and pick out your eyes and rip off your skin and turn you into mincemeat. And then you were just dumped. And this guy boldly comes to Pilate and he says, I want the body. He's got a lot to lose by doing this. He can lose his status. He can lose his wealth. He could lose his relationships, maybe even some of his familial relationships. And yet he does this and he, he takes these linens that he has purchased and he carefully has Jesus wrapped up in them and then he buries the body. What's his motive? Why does Joseph of Arimathea respond this way to the death of Jesus? Well, verse 43 tells us. It says... He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Other translations say he was looking for the kingdom of God. We've talked for a few weeks about what the kingdom of God is in this church because we're going through the Sermon on the Mount together where Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. But basically what Joseph is looking for is, is he's, he's looking for a bit of the next world to break into his world, into this one. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is found wherever the rule of God is found. And he's longing for this kingdom where God's rule is recognized and God's rule is followed. And so he responds in faith to that longing in this corpse of Jesus Christ. All people long for the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or an irreligious person, you want the kingdom of God because you see, everybody wants what sometimes is called, you know, a better world. We would all love a utopia. It comes by all kinds of different names, but it means basically this, where injustice is eradicated. You want a world like that? That's the kingdom of God. Where every human being, by virtue of their very existence, they deserve and are treated with respect and dignity. If you want that, you want the kingdom of God. A natural world that, that even though it's at our disposal and even though we get to cultivate it and we get to, to use it to our advantage, it somehow remains unsullied and, and, and undamaged. That's the kingdom of God. Joseph is longing for that. And he thinks that he's found it in a dead Jesus. What I want to do for a few minutes is I want to give you some reasons to long for, to look for, to wait for, 
to seek after this kingdom of God as well. That it is not a fool's errand to hope for a world like the one I just described to you. That looking for it makes absolute sense so that every day when you get up, you actually live hopefully in the here and now because you know that one day what we have right here will be radically transformed. And so every day is a day begun in hope. That's what I want to do. And I'm going to show you three things, I think. Probably. First of all, the first thing is the resurrection itself is true. It is an historical fact. There was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived in the flesh like you and me. He had blood coursing through his veins like you and me. He had organs that worked like you and me. And he actually lived some 2,000 years ago till the age of approximately 30 to 33. And then he died. He was killed. He was put to death on that cross. He even had a spear thrust into his side to ensure that he had actually died a real death, a human death. But then he rose from the dead. You'll notice that in verses, verse 16, it mentions that the women were the first to go to the empty tomb. Well, if you go back in Mark, it says in verse 40 that women were around the cross, and he names these women, specifically the same women, and he says they're there watching him die, and then it says in verse 47 that there were some women there who watched Jesus get buried, wrapped up in the linen cloth and put into the tomb, etc. Mark is trying to establish the credibility of these women as eyewitnesses to the actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's basically saying, I know it sounds crazy. I know it's a wild story. And so I don't really expect you to just believe my word for it. Go ask those people. I gave you their names. You go find out if I'm telling the truth for yourself. And what's absolutely astounding about this in the, in the first place is that he, he, he mentions that it was women who were the first eyewitnesses in the first, at all. Because you see, it was a different time then, okay, ladies. And wrongly and unfairly, women were not seen to be credible witnesses to events. So a woman was not allowed to go to court and testify in a court case on her own. She had to have a man along to actually corroborate her story in order for her testimony to be considered admissible. It would be a little bit like today if you went down to the, the Grace Kids room for three three-year-olds to SK and they're the ones who were the first eyewitnesses to Jesus and you were supposed to uh, believe their story that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. You'd find that a little bit hard to believe, right? Well, back then, they found it a little bit hard to believe that these women all witnessed the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But what's interesting is that every single one of the gospel writers points out that the first witnesses were women. And if you're trying to spin a tale, if you're trying to to convince people of something that's that's really impossible, (laughs) you're not going to make your first witnesses a number of women. That just hurts your argument, you see? And, you know, people will say, well, 
that just proves that it wasn't true because the first witnesses were these gullible individuals, women. But if you look at verse 8, it says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They went to the tomb expecting a body. There's no body there. They freak out. This angel tells them that Jesus is gone. And they leave. But notice, the angel tells them, in verse 7, Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. See, at least three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells his disciples, Just so you know, I don't want you to be alarmed, but I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to get killed, but it's not the end of the story. I'm going to come back. I'm going to rise three days later. He says that at least three times as Mark records. And Mark is the shortest of the Gospels by a long shot. So that probably means that Jesus told his disciples lots of times, over and over and over again, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to rise from the dead. And here they are on the day after Jesus dies. Or sorry, day of Jesus' resurrection. And they're sitting around and nobody is saying to themselves, hey, wait, wait a minute. There's something strange about this. Wait, didn't, didn't he say this was going to happen? Shouldn't someone just go check? Nobody says that. The women show up and they are shocked. And they leave and they don't tell a soul. Why do you think they don't tell a soul? Because it's impossible for someone to rise from the dead. They thought so too. It's not just us enlightened, enlightened scientific people who knew how life worked. They did too. They were unconvinced, even seeing the empty tomb. And if I can just say one more thing on this. It's, it looked like Jesus' story was going to follow a very familiar pattern. Here's how the pattern went in, in Israel. This happened for years, years before Jesus, years after Jesus. This pattern happened over and over and over again. Some guy rises up in Palestine and says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that God has said is coming to free his people. And he rallies a bunch of people around him. He gets a, a kind of a revolution going. And then the Romans say, wait a minute, we don't want this dude messing up our system here. Let's get him. So they grab him. They uh, they basically try him for treason and they put him up on a cross or they put him on a stake or they throw him to the lions. There's all kinds of ways to kill these revolutionaries. But you kill him and then the crowds disperse, the, the, the revolutionaries filter back into the general population and the problem is over. And it starts again with the next guy. But here, the exact opposite happens. Jesus dies. Is it over? No. This religion, it explodes all of a sudden. Now you have the Roman Empire in, over, in just over 200 years is overtaken by this story of Jesus rising from the dead so that today Christianity is the largest religion on the face of the earth. Why? How? Because it's true. Around the world right now, there are some churches that are saying, you know what? This whole story of Jesus rising from the dead, it's a very interesting story. It's a very inspiring story, but it didn't really happen. What happened is, is, is it showed us, Jesus' life and death, what it did was, is it showed us the triumph of the human spirit. Because we know that people don't rise from the dead. 
So how do we interpret this story of Jesus dying and rising? It shows us the, the, the power and the triumph of the, of the human spirit. But here's the problem with that. You really think that any of these apostles would die for the story, that this is a story of the triumph of the human spirit? Can you imagine Peter, he's in Rome, and he's preaching on the doorstep of the Colosseum, and he's calling people to believe in him, and the authorities come to him, and they grab him by the scruff of the neck, and they start dragging him away, and, he, and he's yelling, remember the triumph of the human spirit, the triumph of the human spirit while they put him up on a cross and kill him just like his Lord? Is that a story that inspires the poor, the afflicted, the hopeless, the oppressed? It happened, man. It really happened. That's the first thing that gives you hope. The second thing that gives you hope is that this Jesus who died, he is the God that we all long for and need. He's the God we all long for and need. Every human being who has ever walked the face of the earth needs some certain things. You've probably heard of a guy named Abraham Maslow. He was a psychologist. He came up with this hierarchy of needs. It looks like a pyramid. And he says you got your most basic needs at the bottom. That's stuff like food and clothing and shelter and then you go up that to another need and to another need and to another need. And the top need that a human being has, he says, but it's the least crucial for survival, is the need for purpose, the need for validation. But the reality is, is that people don't live well without purpose and validation. Every human being is in a desperate search to find validation, to find acceptance, to find approval, to find someone out there or in here to say to them, I'm okay. I am worthy. We all need it. Arthur Miller, who wrote Death of a Salesman, he also wrote a very interesting play called After the Fall. And one of the main characters, he has a soliloquy about all of this at one point. And this is what he says. Listen, for many years, I looked at life like a case at law, like a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or how smart. Then later on, what a good lover you are. Then later on, what a good father you are. And later on, how successful you are, whatever. But underlying it all, I see now there was a presumption. I felt I was on some kind of upward path towards some elevation where I guess I would be justified or even condemned. But there would be a verdict. I now realize my disaster began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty. No judge in sight, no God, and all that remained, listen to this, it's a remarkable statement, all that remained was this endless argument with myself, the litigation of existence before an empty bench, which is another way of saying, of course, despair. The litigation of existence before an empty bench. We are all litigating. We're all trying to justify our existence somehow. And even if you say, well, I don't look to other people to justify my existence. I don't care what other people's opinions are. You talk to yourself a lot. You're constantly arguing your case for yourself. That you're a good person. That you deserve love. That you should have good things. Why do you think we have so many people running around shooting Botox into their faces? 
Why do you think we have a, 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 a plastic surgery industry that has ballooned in the last three or four decades? Why are people constantly trying to curate a perfect Instagram account without a flaw, with every filter properly used to turn every one of us at least for a few minutes anyway, or for a few seconds when people thumb through that, we all look like a supermodel. I always knew I was Brad Pitt in disguise. <laughs> we're trying to convince ourselves that, that we're deserving of joy, that we're, we're worthwhile, that we are validated. And Jesus comes to put an end to that endless argument. Look at verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. There you will see him. This is a beautiful response. Because you see, if you go back to chapter 14, beginning at verse 27, we're now in the upper room. This is at the Last Supper, right? And Jesus is predicting his death. And this is what he says, beginning at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now here we are, after the resurrection, and everybody bailed on Jesus. Every one of them. And Jesus doesn't say, now you go tell those backstabbing cowards that if they come and grovel to me and say they're sorry for having such little faith in me, I will possibly accept them and bring them back into my fold. No, he just says, go tell them. Go tell my brothers. Go tell those guys. I love them. And I'm going to see them in Galilee, just like I told them. Oh, and by the way, tell Peter. You notice it says, and Peter, the disciples, and Peter. Well, what's so famous about Peter? Well, Peter's the guy who had three chances to stand up for Jesus, and every single time he blew it. Every single time. And it could have been that, that the angel had said to the women, tell, Jesus, or tell the, the disciples that Jesus will go see you in Galilee. And so the women, they go to the disciples and say, okay, Jesus said, hey, you're going you're gonna to see him in Galilee. And Peter could have said, sat there listening and thought to himself, yeah, you know, you guys, you go on ahead. I'm not coming. Tim Keller points this out in his sermon on this text. He says, he says, Jesus made a special dispensation for Peter because he knew the incredible amount of guilt that Peter carried over his failure to defend his Lord when he had the chance three times. Because Jesus is a God of grace. This is what we need. We're constantly looking for our validation in other people, in that guy or that girl that we're dating or in our parents or in our boss or in being in the cool crowd at school. And we think, I'll be okay. But we're constantly chasing. We're constantly spending the night lying in bed, heading for sleep, thinking to ourselves, 
How did I do today? You second-guess yourself. It's this litigation of existence. And even if you're saying, that's not my problem, you care what you think, you still have a scorecard. And we're all checking off the boxes. How did I do today? Well, today's Sunday, and today's Easter, and I'm in church, and maybe I wore my business suit jacket, or whatever this is called, sport coat this time, so I'm having a good day. But what about tomorrow? Jesus is saying to us, I see you as you are. I see right through the sport coat. And I love you. I died to make you clean. The litigation is ended. The verdict is in. You are valued. You are cherished. You look at the cross and you, you look at it through the lens of the empty tomb and you say that the God of grace accepts me despite myself. That's what we need so badly. Someone somewhere who is able to say, I see you right down to the bottom and I love you to the skies. And he's the one who does it. One more. The hope of the resurrection and the the encouragement for you to, to continue seeking the kingdom of God, to look for the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of God comes in the fact that the resurrection takes away our fear. You notice in verse 6, it says, do not be alarmed. The angel says to the women, don't be alarmed. Over and over and over again, the gospel writers tell us that the first witnesses to the resurrection were alarmed or frightened. And the, the word that's used there, it's kind of like startled in terror. Like, have you ever been in a situation where, like, in a in a very quick instance, you, you came close to death or like a very serious injury. I remember once I was going fishing and I left really early in the morning before it was light out and I'm driving down the highway and admittedly I was speeding because there was nothing else on the road and I'm driving and all of a sudden I hit a, pa- I hit a patch of gravel. Some dump truck had left a, a bunch of gravel and my car just, it was like I was driving over marbles. And my car just started going. And I thought, this is it. I'm done for. Happens to me again almost every time I fly. Because almost every time I fly, it's bad weather. And the plane has to land with a big wind shear happening. And I've got my sick bag out thinking, this is it. It's over. That's the kind of feeling that these women had. That's what this word is trying to describe. But here's the thing. He says, don't be alarmed. Why? Because he is raised. The resurrection is meant to dispel their fear. I love how one writer puts it. uh, he, He says this, The early Christians did not say, Look what the world has come to. Don't you do that when you're watching the news? Or reading the paper? And you shake your head and you see there's another war here and there's another killing there and there's another political fight there and there's another example of oppression there. And and you think to yourself, this world, what's come to this world? What has this world come to? The early Christians didn't say that and they had every reason to say it. But they said instead, in delight, look what has come to the world. Because through the lens of the empty tomb, through the lens of the resurrection, they saw not merely ruin, but the resources for the reconstruction of that ruin. 
They saw not merely that sin did abound, but that grace did much more abound. On that assurance, the pivot of history swung from blank despair, loss of moral nerve, and fatalism to faith and confidence that at last sin had met its match. That something new had come into the world. That not only here and there, but everywhere, on a wide scale, people could attain to that hitherto impossible thing. Goodness, the kingdom of God. It broke in through that empty tomb. And the last thing that it shows us is, is if Jesus is raised from the dead, friends, that means that that this physical world that we're in right now, it matters an awful lot to God. That salvation is not about escaping this world and going to a different place, but rather it's the renewal of this world right here. And so everything in this world that it has to offer, all the good things that you may have missed out on, you will not miss out on them forever. You see, the new heavens and the new earth, resurrection means that, that when we go to be with Jesus, he's going to come here to be with us. And he's not going to give us just a consolation for all the things we maybe missed out on in this world. We're going to get it back. There are people who live day to day in this life and they feel like they got the short end of the stick. What if you were born in Afghanistan? What if you were born with a, a physical defect that made it impossible for you to walk? What if you're born with a, a mental illness diagnosis? What if you're born with a, a diagnosis that comes from, from uh, the, the abuse of addictive uh, substances from your mother when you were in the womb and you had no control over that and you live this life and you walk through this world day after day, week after week, year after year with this limp with this, this defect, with this thing that, that takes away joy and just makes life harder and it feels like there's absolutely nothing you can do with it. Where do you find hope in that? You see, if it's just this world that Jesus saved us for, then people like those that I just described, what do you say to them? Tough one. Sucks to be you. What more can you say to them? But the resurrection, friends, the resurrection says that that's not how it's going to be. We all have unrealized dreams. But we know, we know that in the resurrection there is a new opportunity for life, a life that maybe we didn't get on this side of glory. Johnny Erickson taught us, some of you know her, she, in a swimming accident, she became a quadriplegic. She was uh, immobile from the chest down, paralyzed from the chest down. And she tells the story of being at a conference once and at the end of a very rousing speech, one of the, con the conference speakers said, well, let's get on our knees now, let's kneel and pray. And she started weeping because there she was in a wheelchair and she can't, she can't get down on her knees and pray. But her crying, even though it started as sorrow, it turned into tears of hope. And this is how she writes about this event. She says, sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven I will be free to jump, dance, kick, and do aerobics. 
And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees, and I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. And then I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? The resurrection, friend, says that if you long to dance, one day you will. If you long to have that loneliness that weighs upon your heart lifted, one day it will because you'll know perfect love. If you are anxious, one day you will have perfect peace. If you are depressed, one day you will have unfettered joy. If you are tired of fighting sin, one day you will have complete freedom. If your body is sore and aching and falling apart, one day it will be freed from all of that. Everything sad will come untrue. Now you've heard the story. What are you going to do with it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of the resurrection that makes promises to us that are beyond the walls of this world. Father, help us to believe those promises. Jesus did actually rise from the dead, and so our faith is not futile. It is the most reasonable response one can have to this news. To believe. And so I pray for anybody here this morning who has not yet believed. That they would entrust themselves, maybe for the first time right now, to Jesus, the resurrected one. That they would see with the eyes of their heart those nail-pierced hands, those nail-pierced feet, and realize that those piercings are there for them. That Jesus had, had their name on his heart and on his lips as he died on that cross so long ago. And he took their sin to the grave and then burst forth triumphant over it. May all of us live in the hope of the resurrection This day and every day. In Jesus we pray. Amen.